Welcome to the Onyx Report, a program that critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society across age, class, region, sexuality, and profession. I'm your host, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male studies scholar, and black male advocate. In the program, we examine current events and major issues using an empirically driven black masculinist theoretical lens, thus including such concepts as the black male dual economy, anti-black misandry, phallicism, the subordinate male target hypothesis, and the black dynarchy. Our goal is to remind people, including black men themselves, of black men's humanity. Join us every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, either on YouTube or innerlightradio.com. Okay, welcome back to the Onyx Report. This has been a crazy week, <laughs> but it's going, and uh, we're keeping it moving. So uh, hopefully you guys are falling in. Um, what uh, we're doing today is actually a continuation from a show my good brother had um, just last night. He welcomed me on, um, and so the conversation got so good between uh, you know his guest, myself, and himself that I decided, you know what, we're going to continue it on my show. Uh, today was actually, I was actually going to talk about, the subject of today's show was going to be how are black women's deaths being used against black men. But I found that our discussion last night was so pivotal that I wanted to continue it. And I will probably fold some of that in. But I want to bring in my brother, Sara who again had his show last night and I want him to kind of talk about uh, the show we had, the subject of it, um, you know, how it came into his mind to do and then we'll introduce our our guest, uh, Brother Asar and, and, and kind of break it down from there. So Brother Sarah? Yes, Brother. Thank you for the introduction. Last night we did on my show Journey in the Self here on Internet Inner Light Radio. The topic was the role of black feminism as a tool of white supremacy. Mm. The reason that I was compelled to deal with that particular topic was my observation that one, black feminism has never been there's never been a need for black feminism in the community because black women have never been oppressed by black men. Indeed, it has been the case that black women have been afforded more opportunity in the black community than black men have have had more economic opportunity than black men have. And because of the advantages afforded to black women in the society in this country, black women have basically taken the mantle from black men in terms of the predominant role in the family. They have become literal and figurative heads of the household. 
that has shaped their attitudes towards black men. And I postulate that this phenomenon was a tool used by white supremacy to undermine the black family structure. Mm -hmm. We've seen this manifest itself in a number of number of different areas and then you know we talked about how it affects the, the attitudes that black women have towards black men and then we start to see how it has affected even the current protest movement that has arisen as a result of the murder by the police of black men primarily and how that has been co-opted by a feminist LGBTQ movement called Black Lives Matter uh, diverting the issue to, to address those issues as opposed to the dealing with what started the protest in the first place which was the gunning down of, of black men mm-hmm. so I felt like I had been kind of sitting on the sidelines for, for too long <laughs> and needed to, needed to weigh in on, on that and, uh, and of course uh, in having that particular conversation it was uh, imperative that I invite the black male advocate <laughs> Dr. Hassan Johnson and, and also our brother Tassar uh, Remind Okay, uh, and brother Asar is now. Can you tell us? Uh, just kind of introduce him for us. So we can bring him in. Well, brother Asar is a mental health professional who's um, currently an author of a, of a book, and I'll let the brother uh, share with us the uh, the title of his book. Uh, he's developed his, uh, and he's. His primary area of expertise is psychology, and he's, uh, you know, very uh, proficient at analyzing the the trauma that uh, black people have undergone in our experience in this country. You know, in particular, uh, and how it's affected the psyche of black men. So, I thought it was, you know, very important as well to have that brother Asar weigh in. Now let Brother Sorry talk a little bit more, give some background about himself. Please. Greetings, brothers. Greetings, greetings. Uh, as always, it's a pleasure to uh, engage with you, brothers, on these various platforms. And last night I got so excited, I, I was actually disappointed when we had to end the show. So, uh, <laughs> and again, Brad, it's good to hear hearty laughter because Sarah and I often talk about the pain and struggle that we've always gone through historically, mm. particularly now when it's at the forefront of every media platform that you see. Mm. Because for years we've been denied the fact that these things were not occurring to, to us. So my background is I've spent a quarter of a century working in the mental health field and behavioral health. Mm. And I've written several syllabuses in the form of manuals or teaching manuals. And the first one is on, it, they're all titled Better Left Unsaid, because mm-hmm. these are topics that the general public doesn't want to discuss, they're social ills. And the first one is on sociopathy, the various things that impact us 
from a, from a societal perspective. And the second one is on uh, psychoanalytical psychosocial behavior. And the third one is on um, on narcissistic personality disorder. And in lieu of what's been going on, I <laughs> I was forced to write this latest manual, The Chilling Effects of Living, Living, Functioning While Black, Be You Man, Woman, Child, or Fetus. And the subtitle is Historical Injuries, A Much Needed Conversation. So I come from a, again, a psychoanalytical perspective. I look at everything through that lens. And... Again, it's good to hear you brothers to give me an opportunity not just to express my expertise, but just to vent the pain and anger that I'm mm-hmm. experiencing through this, through, through these social ills that are just, oh man, just they're taking our lives. And, and even though this is at the forefront of everything that's going on, they've killed like 150 people since George Floyd was mm-hmm. snuffed out in front of the, the world can see. Mm-hmm. So I'm just as a clinician as a mental health professional with the tools that i possess i'm still struggling with this mm-hmm. now as far as the topics that we were discussing last night i look at it from well our ability to develop interpersonal relationships with one another has always been fragmented because mm-hmm. of our historical wounds because of the multi-generational wounds of slavery because of all of the psychological state-sponsored government programs that they've inserted into our communities to keep us divided. And I've always said, when you look at a black couple, a brother and a sister trying to negotiate the complexities of interpersonal relationships, we're we're starting at a deficit and Mm -hmm. we should be seeking out cultural sensitivity, therapeutic services before we even engage in interpersonal relationships because we don't possess the emotional intelligence to be able to do that. So then when you factor in what's going on with these various movements, we talked last night about um, Gloria Steinem and the whole women's power, just all of that nonsense again, which was a psyop inserted into the movement of, of the civil rights movement to distract us from what our objectives are. So I, I don't have a problem putting my feelings out there saying that I am struggling with where we're at today. Mm. I'm 60 years old. And I've watched this from the time that I was born. I remember tanks rolling through our communities when I was six, seven, eight years old in Northeast Ohio. So Mm. again, we just keep repeating these same social ills that again, fragment brothers and sisters and our capacity and ability to be able to navigate interpersonal relationships. Absolutely. Matter of fact, you don't even have to be 60. I mean, when we talk about what happened with Mike Brown, this is the big, you know, this, it, it, everything that's taken place seemed very familiar just from five years ago, you know, absolutely seeing the same well, kind of cycles. And I'd like to add just a small little caveat it, chronologically. Yes, I'm 60 years old, but the importance of that statement is this, mm-hmm. these occurrences, these emotional traumas that we incur based upon this experiment that they call America, it mm-hmm. bioaccumulates. Mm-hmm. It accumulates in us emotionally, then it accumulates in us physiologically. And after it manifests itself emotionally, it's going to manifest itself physiolog- physiologically. That's why we're in the top, the top categories of all debilitating diseases out there. So mm-hmm. when I say 60, I've had 60 years of this, I almost said something. 
this system <laughs> on my neck. It's been on my neck mm-hmm. for 60 years. Mm-hmm. And trying to navigate that in a healthy manner, it is a struggle. And again, institutionalized systemic structural racism tries to tell us that that knee on our neck isn't really on our neck. It's because mm-hmm. we're failing as black people is the reason why we feel this knee on our neck. But in actuality, it is an oppressive system that's been here from day one. Yeah. Brother so, can I just interject something real quick? Oh, I was coming to you. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say that I would be remiss on this particular day to not give honor and uh, acknowledgement of the fact that today is the birthday of our brother, Steve Coakley. Wow. Oh, man. Wow. Okay, so I just want to put that that on the record. And uh, I was watching one of his videos earlier today. And as I say, everything is in divine order. The tape that I was looking at was one that he recorded at the Good Life right in the wake of the 1992 rebellion. Okay. Heard as a result of what? The Rodney King beating. Right. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Right. This so was what? In 1992. We're in 2012. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about an intergenerational issue that, that you know, it has been. And I've been, I've been telling people for years. I mean, keep in mind, especially, I've been saying this very recently, but particularly to my younger brothers, this is a protracted struggle. Um, you've been waged war on since the womb, but this goes back generations. And, and so I don't want you to measure this by the clock of the last five years. I want you to measure this by the clock of the last few centuries and, and you know, and strategize from that standpoint, but also take in a degree of, um, of measured patience, a, a degree of, of strategic thinking in how we address this, because this is an old war. You know, as much as it may look new because it's online and you're seeing things in social media, this is actually a very old war. And, uh, you know, keeping that in mind, pace yourself like a long distance runner, because, this, you know, so much of this, you know, can be an affront to the senses, you know, when you think that this is new. Um, And it's traumatic either way. But at the end of the day, if you know uh, that your grandparents, your your great grandparents, they were dealing with the same war. there, there is something to be gained from that. I think uh, when you know trying to process what all this means, and maybe that's something Brother Sar can can speak to. And then uh, after that, if Brother Sarah, if we might you know kind of pick up where we left off. I'm not sure what the subject was we left off on. We can go from there. But Brother Sar, can you speak to you know what might be of, of benefit you know e- emotionally or psychologically? from stepping back and recognizing this as something bigger than just what's happening in the moment. When you look at our historical wounds, it has to start with, for example, the Old Testament, the curse of Ham, where they tried to designate our blackness as it being a curse. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you also have to look at the role the Catholic church played in um, the papal bull, Doctrine of Discovery, which they, the edict that was passed out was because these are considered savages in the eyes of the Catholic Church, 
Mm. We give you the right from the from the edict of the church to invade these indigenous lands and conquer the people and enslave them. That was 1493. Mm. So this thing goes back yeah. a millennial, yeah. two millennial, yeah. three millennial. Yeah. Right. This war is historic and it's ongoing. And until we recognize these these psychological operations that are waged against us, mm-hmm. and they're they're subtle. They're in Hollywood, through the movies. I, I, I watched just as a sidebar. I'm sorry, gentlemen. I watch quickly down under because you know sometimes mm-hmm. I got to get out of my own head because mm-hmm. it'll it'll mm-hmm. take me there. Mm-hmm. And I, I see this this pattern where you know the white male hero on his trusty steed comes in to save people of color. He was recruited to come to Australia in this movie to kill the Aboriginal people by this this farm owner who said, these people are pestilent. We need to get rid of them. And once he recognized the role that he was asked to play, he was like, no, I'm going to go on the side of the the Aboriginal people, the black fellows and their female counterparts. I am going to challenge this white man because he is killing Indigenous people. That's just another variation of the Jesus story. That mm. there always has to be some white man to come in to save us. Mm-hmm. And that's just from the entertainment aspect of it. When you look at standardized compulsory education, it is designed specifically to extinguish the desire of particularly young black male children. It crushes mm-hmm. them emotionally. Mm-hmm. Do they have no interest in finding out, well, what's over there? Where's my curiosity? Where's my, my art, my artistry? It extinguishes that desire to want to, to just look into those things. So, well, you know, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, bro. Cause like I get on a roll, man, you, you brothers got to stop me. <laughs> no, not at all. I was going to say just, you know, in terms of transitioning to our discussion on feminism, one thing I would say about what you, what you were observing in media is it, it almost seems like now that the, the Christ's white savior paradigm is now just being, you know, shifted to a female Christ savior paradigm, but it's still a white paradigm that, that's been imposed. It has all the same markings. They're, what they consider avant-garde film now is just reversing the gender of the white savior. Uh, yeah. So now we have this white woman figure. But uh, where, where, Brother Sarah, where were, where, where were we last night? I think we ended when we were talking about the the circumvention of the the protest movement against police violence. Okay. Okay. Ironically, just before I got on, I saw someone had posted Black Women Lives Matter. <laughs> mm, okay. Okay. And, and see, these are the subtle psyops that are mm-hmm. inserted into any opportunity that we take for self-determination and self-empowerment. Because prior to that post, Sarah, a few days ago, the post or the narrative that was being put out there was all black lives matter. Like, why would you have to say all black lives matter when you say black lives matter, which encompasses our diaspora? That's all of us. That's a given. And someone made a similar comment to me when I posted some information that demonstrated what the agenda of Black Lives Matter movement was. 
And so they said, well, you know, don't, you know, shouldn't all Black Lives Matter? I'm like, of course they do. But, but that's missing the point. Because the point is that it's not that all Black people are being killed. Black feminine or Black, you know, transgender people are not being killed like Black men are. Mm-hmm. Black women are actually being killed at the same rate that black black men are. So saying that all black lives matter is akin to saying when someone says black lives matter, uh, all lives matter. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Because, okay, of course they do. That's a given. But mm-hmm. that's the issue is not that all people are getting killed by the police. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All people aren't being killed by the police. There's a specific targeted group that are being killed by the police, which we know is primarily black men. Right. Yeah. And this, and see, when, and when you said, brother, earlier, uh, uh, Asar, when you were talking about this being a PSYOP, this is definitely the case. Because if you look at the, really, the beginnings of mainstreamed black feminism in the 70s and in the 80s, you can't help but see the fingerprints of Gloria Steinem uh, you can't help but see the fingerprints of, of you know, in terms of her uh, being financed by the intelligence community, yeah. Miss Magazine, and, yeah. and the way in which we saw the the rise of Alice Walker, the way we saw the rise of Michelle Wallace, uh, author of uh, Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman, all of these kinds of works that came out in a very critical period of time and told black women that they were oppressed by black men that black men get too much attention, that black men, uh, the only reason they were interested in the civil rights movement was to have sex with white women. These kinds of superficial critiques of, you know, a multifaceted community of black men became centered. And we fast forward several decades, and here we are hearing the same types of talking points, the same types of logics being used in the midst of these protests. And this is something we've seen take center stage, especially in 2015, after the death of Mike Brown, where you have the rise of Black Lives Matter coming into Ferguson uh, and really beginning to shift the narrative from police homicide and unjust treatment uh, of Black people, most particularly Black men, to shaming tactics about why uh, the Black LGBT community doesn't get more attention, uh, black black women and black LGBT. So this these kind of this kind of switch, this kind of bait and switch approach, kind of became popular in 2015 and is still in effect today. So as soon as we saw uh, George Floyd in the news, immediately there were complaints about how we weren't centering enough black LGBT, and and, and, and not even in regard to police homicide. You know, we, we just weren't centering them enough. That was the discussion. Uh, we weren't centering enough uh, Breonna Taylor. And, and it just became this kind of, you know, d- deflection to where we were actually, you know, you had people debating and fighting over media attention rather than actually getting at the bottom of the cause, which goes back to the state. Right? Yes. It, it, your brother Sarah, give us your thoughts. Well... It's it's pretty clear that this was a mechanism to to undermine the, the black community in my eyes, and definitely is a as you pointed out, both of you, that it's a it's a science. 
and it has been extremely effective in uh, undermining the the black community because we've seen it manifest itself in uh, the attitudes that that black women have towards black men even now. Uh, you know, we talked about last night how it's manifested itself in terms of the the economic disparities between black men and black women. We talked about how in the media it is primarily black women who are able to shape the narrative. And mm-hmm. we talked about last night how, you know, I, I, I think you asked one, at one point, you know, name a black man who has a has a show where he talks about any issues. There mm-hmm. are no, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about how Oprah Winfrey and Gail King have platforms which they have used to, to denigrate black men at, at every opportunity that they have. I just noted today that this this actor named Danny Masterson, oh yeah, yeah, was charged with rape, mm-hmm. three counts of rape. Okay, yeah, so now, white actor, white actor from that '70s show, right? That '70s show, indeed. And so I'm wondering which of them is going to do a program about his illicit conduct. Of course, we know that won't happen mm-hmm. because that's not part of the agenda. No. Now, the agenda is and has always been to undermine the the image of, of black men in both the eyes of, of our women and the eyes of the world because that is what we are the most most feared species on the planet. I think you and Brother Steve has said that uh, Zygmunt Brzezinski in his book, Out of Control, pointed out that the the black man, the young black male, is the number one threat to to security in the United States. Wow. It's actually the New World Order. <laughs> mm. Right. The New World mm. Wow. Brother Sar, uh, jump in on this question of, you know, where we are in the PSYOPs, you know, kind of dynamic. Uh, you you talked about its 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 use in the past. Um, in regard to you know the current state of, of gender dynamics, some call it gender war. Um, it, where do you see the psyops framework kind of at now? Where are we? Where are we? If we stop and take stock, and and, and I mean that question particularly to, to you, not only in terms of what's happening, but what the collective psychological impact is at this moment uh, across generations. When you look at the various social engineering programs that are out there to to keep the system safe, to protect it, mm-hmm. again, uh, uh, my lived experience is, is 60 years. You get past a half a century, and it, it becomes real clear mm-hmm. on how they manipulate the system. So, Brother Sarah mentioned, well, we had the, the 92 insurrection, and over the years, but let's even go back to the to the Watts Rebellion. Mm. Let's go back to the '60s, where Jersey was on fire, Detroit was on fire, New York was on fire, L.A. was on fire when they assassinated mm. Martin Luther King. Mm. And you would think that we would have learned this trick back because what they do is they allow us to siphon off some steam, mm. throw our little tantrums, mm-hmm. and then because Martin Luther King also said that as a nation we got a two-week memory. Mm. So they, they placate us, they 
give these little palliative measures to make us feel like that there's going to be change mm-hmm. and nothing changes so from my perspective both lived and professionally i don't i have to be honest brother i don't see a change because you would think we would have learned this trick bag by now but <laughs> this is a trillion dollar industry that they yes. they project just to keep I'm not just talking about the New World Order. I'm just not talking about, you know, American hegemony. They can't complete their task without checkmating the masterpiece on the checkboard, which is the black man. Well, indeed. indeed. But, and one more point I wanted to just interject. Yes, I was watching brothers, Brother Steve's video earlier today. He pointed out how you remember in the after the 92 rebellion they initiated operation cool down oh. yes mm-hmm. and so they interjected their their chosen leadership into mm. uh cool the situation down to to redirect the focus uh to take the money mm-hmm and you know to basically uh, reduce the temperature of the of the protests that are going on. Oh, so we see that uh, as we go back to this particular subject, we know that this was a grassroots movement mm-hmm. that rose up in protest to the police violence. Mm-hmm. Okay, and now all of a sudden, the chosen white Negro leadership, which seems to be, in this case, the Black Men Lives Matter organization has mm-hmm. been put in front of it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Malcolm X talked about that back during the during the March on Washington, mm-hmm. where, similarly, it was a grassroots movement and the white power structure uh, found the white finance chosen leadership the big six he referred to and put them in front of the movement mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. well let so, me let me just because I got to throw this in there mm-hmm. when the rebellion of 92 jumped off yes they got together so called think tanks mm-hmm. okay yes. not, not people like Sarah, people like myself they definitely didn't call a brother like Steve Oakley, like, no, 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 he, he could not be a part of this equation. So they came up with a plan to neutralize the anger of black people. Again, what Steve taught us was to give us palliative measures, not curative. And out of that rebuild LA money from mm. that rebellion, they came up with front page on KJLH. Wow. So it's supposedly to give people a voice to be able to vent their frustrations. And it was radical. Mm. It, it started out being at 6 a.m. in the morning. But it was so <laughs> popular. Yeah, it was so popular. No, no, it, it was before yeah. that. But no, you're right. You're right. It did start at 6. Yeah. it got moved for 30 to make it yeah. accessible. Because wow. all of the radical voices there were calling in. Because we had people calling in from all over the nation. That's how popular it was. Another allocation of funds was an agency called WLCAC. It's in Watts which is what burned to the ground in 68. I okay. used to work there, I remember. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, and they have an amazing museum there. So they put these little palliative measures out there to give the illusion. They were actually saying, well, here, let's do something to invest in the community. But there is no economic investment. 
Mm-hmm. There is nothing that we can say, well, here's an economic engine that black people can grow through prosperity. Mm-hmm. So again, they come up with these little, these little palliative measures that aren't really like, like what 45 just signed. See, it is a executive order, mm-hmm. some sort of initiative, but it doesn't have any teeth. It doesn't say anything. Mm-hmm. So again, this is that trick bag going back to the question you asked me earlier. Do I see a difference? Well, time will tell right. because this is a global movement. And yes, people are coming in trying to usurp the death of George Floyd, but this is global. You got Paris, you got France, you got the Scandinavian countries all saying Black Lives Matter. So it'll be interesting to see where we're at six months from now. So we can revisit then. I can give you a more appropriate answer. Well, you know, I, I want to, there's two little pieces I want to add to that. First and foremost, I do want to say when it comes to Black Lives Matter, we have to differentiate between the various types. And, and, I, and I, I suggest there's at least two, at least. Okay. You have the formal, you know, organization, you know, that we've been talking about. You can go to their website. You can see the absence of black men. You can yeah. see the method they've used of using black male deaths, particularly heterosexual black male deaths to garner attention and then bait and switch the conversation uh, to women and LGBTs. Um, so there is that. But then you have this this grassroots level on a local level of people who, who are who are tied into their communities and wanting to see change. And they're using, you know, the moniker they've heard, because when we first heard Black Lives Matter chanted, many of us didn't know it was a formal organization. You know what I mean? Because the chant was, and some people still don't, right? So first you heard hands up, don't shoot. And a previous guest that I had who was active in Ferguson and still is, Nyota Uhura, she said there was a middle chant. I got to go back to my show with her from like a week and a half ago. I don't recall it. I hadn't heard the other chant she mentioned at that time, but I do remember it being hands up, don't shoot. And then all of a sudden you- I can't breathe. I, I don't remember if it, if Eric Garner's uh, death had occurred right at that moment bef- between Hands Up, Don't Shoot and Black Lives Matter. But I do remember, I remember this, uh, you know, the news was showing these brothers who were active gang members who started protecting the community and, yes. and beginning to have tensions with the police. And then all of a sudden, and this goes back to what you were talking about, Sarah, about the cooling effect, but but less formal. You started to see this influx of highly educated, young, mostly black female activists who were traveling into Ferguson. You saw past pastors coming in, students, you saw all kinds of people transitioning in. And I'm not saying that in and of itself was bad, the influx of people. But what you started to see happening is very particular groups of people began to take the conversation away from the local Ferguson residents and it became an online thing. So you're now all of a sudden you had these people online who were taking donations in Ferguson who didn't live in Ferguson, <laughs> who would never been to Ferguson. And so, you know, and, and for local people who just lost a family member, they're not prepared to compete with you know, a, 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 a nonprofit that already has 501c3 status and they've just floated into your town and started tweeting about that and somehow their presence authenticates their, you know, them receiving any kind of donations, whereas the family members of Mike Brown are still scrambling to deal with the fact that their son has died. You know what I mean? So this kind of dynamic began to happen. And then when we started to hear Black Lives Matter, we thought it was a chance. So you have local people around the country building their own Black Lives Matter organizations that they weren't even necessarily calling chapters. 
they were just building it. And then, and then as you found out this was a formal organization, now you have this kind of balancing act between how much you, because again, many of us, not only did we not know it was a formal organization, we didn't know that the philosophy was very specific to LGBT. Right. We were not used to having to read the fine print on an organization that seemed to come from the grassroots and was led by black folk. You know, all we had to hear was Black Lives Matter and we were off. We didn't know we had that. I mean, that's something we're still grappling with, that the PSYOP framework that you brothers are talking about was in such effect that now we have to vet organizations that start and seem grassroots, but start with young black folk. We have to vet them now. We have to read the mission statement. We have to go through the website. And I think at the time, it might not have been one yet. So, you know, now we have to learn to do that because we really weren't prepared for that. And we're still grappling with it. So now five years later, when this stuff is happening again, everyone from local mom and pops or local community to white corporations, all they know in terms of black issues is name recognition. So everybody jumps to Black Lives Matter and starts sending in money. You know, so we're 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 so I wanted to differentiate between the different levels and types of Black Lives Matter because some are just local communities that heard the phrase, agree with the sentiment, and are going out in the street in the spirit of civil rights, Black power, and that narrative of protest that we've had in the Black community, uh, and and they're they're not really tied into this psyop framework, at least not purposely so, but we see that kind of playing out. Either one of you, what do you think about that whole dynamic? Well, for one, it's been, you have to give up the fact that it's been pretty ingenious in terms of the effectiveness that it's had. Because mm. you know, I'm observing it, even when they chanted, the chants weren't initially Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. You know, the chant, people were chanting, you know, the, the typical things no justice, no peace. Yes. Yes. And then, you know, slowly it started being shifted into the Black Lives Matter and people started coming in, you know, with the the Black Lives Matter uh, signs. And then uh, you started seeing them painting, you know, Black Lives Matter. And the sister, you know, mayor of Washington, D.C. painted it on the on the streets of D.C. So you started even just seeing the 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 vocalization of the issue being co-opted and changed. Mm. Right. So um but you know you're right. You know, people need to to be much more mindful these days and and, and to, to read the fine print. You know, one of the things that we were were ended on ending on last night when we were talking about it was when, we were, when there was a sister who did a a YouTube video where she went to their page and read the fine print mm. and broke it down, you know, methodically, uh, demonstrating that it was, it is a LGBTQ, LD, LGBTQ oriented organization. Uh, they're about the advancement of that community. And it said they want to end the hetero uh, hetero dominated leadership. 
mm-hmm. heterosexual dominated leadership. Ended. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So work. Okay. Let me let me throw a little caveat in there. So as it relates to these monikers, this is an, ex- is an extension, in my opinion, from the church because we've been groomed to look for a savior. No. Either it's an individual Uh-oh. or it's someone that steps up and says, hey, my path is the way. So <laughs> again, you brothers have already, have already framed the fact that we don't investigate things. We look to say, okay, well, I'm hurting. This is going on in my community. Where's, where's my savior? Who's going to step up and guide me? Who's going to be the Pied Piper to lead me to salvation? So of course, they're going to take that and sculpt it in a narrative to where we feel like, okay, well, let's follow Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. without any in-depth, in-depth investigation regarding, well, what is their actual agenda? Mm-hmm. So let me, let me, so let's go back to what you asked me earlier. How is this impacting us on a psychological and emotional level? Now, you know, we do things on the side. We have conversations outside of this particular venue. And I share with you, brothers, that I come from a huge family, okay. a matriarchal family, okay? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. dominated by women. And when I mm-hmm. say dominated, brother, man, I'm telling you dominated. Okay? <laughs> and, and I am the youngest in the family. So okay. let me just share this personal story to kind of give, give more context to, to this illusion that black men are oppressing black women. Mm. So in 2005, I go home or if you so high up my hometown on Cleveland, Ohio, where I grew up. And I go home with a, a economic package. I, I want to have a family business because I see all these other cultures, all these, these other ethnicities building their economics through family businesses. They, they buy a house, they get two houses, they have a corner store. And, and right. as we know, that our, our, our Latinx brothers and sisters, you'll see them selling shoestrings and oranges at the end of the freeway. And the next year, they got a storefront. Mm. So I observed this and I'm like, well, let me take this package home. I had charts, I had graphs, I had, I had a whole thing. So I'm like, okay, Cleveland, okay, it's blighted. One of the little suburbs outside of Cleveland is a place called East Cleveland, okay? They filed bankruptcy. And there's a multitude of economic engines right here in that area. You have Cleveland State University, you have tri- uh, Cleveland, Cleveland Clinic. This thing is like a growing, festering blob. Mm-hmm. It started out being a little small clinic on four blocks. It's like, it's bigger than Central Park. Mm. So I'm like, okay, family, let's get together. Let's form a, um, a business. Let's get a president, a vice president, a treasurer, okay? And every family member, let's put in 20 bucks a month. So initially, I pitched the idea to my brother-in-law's. We're sitting on the back porch of my oldest sister, and I'm throwing these ideas at them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, so what you brother? And these cats are all older than me. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I'm like, okay, what you brothers think about this? We, we put in 20 bucks a month, okay, and then when we get the, the necessary venture capital, we can go in and we can start buying property. You might have to sit on it for two, five, ten years. Mm-hmm. Okay? And here's the point that I'm making. Around the room, I'm sorry, on the back porch each brother-in-law okay they were like wait you want us to do what man man you know how your sisters are you mm. know how your 
Mm. They were literally terrified to make a decision without right. the approval of right. my sisters. Right. So that that goes into the fact that we ain't never dominated our system. Ever. Man, when you look at it, especially my generation, because my generation, Generation X, was the first to really have a more widespread single parent framework. And so what you had happening uh, was, you know, female-led households and we and boys became highly socialized to take direction from female authority figures. Because you, you, not only do you have that happening in the household, but in school, you know what I mean, over 85, 90% of the teachers are female across yeah. race. So that said, and I think the percentage might even be higher than that. So what you end up happening having for boys from you know kindergarten really from birth if you talk about the first five years at home but from birth through at least high school you're taking direction primarily from female authority figures and and so asserting yourself in and of itself and, and this is especially af after we have the rise of this kind of feminist ethos it, asserting yourself in terms of being a male taking authority is almost seen as an inherently sexist act right and certain especially in the black community but you come out of a framework that's primarily female-led. So to your point, you're absolutely right, right? It, it, we're not this kind of notion that we're that black men are oppressing women and all that. That's entirely untrue and was never the case because black men have never been in the position to do that, you know, institutionally or in terms of the capacity to to build institutions that do that. We've never been in that kind of position. But it's even more pronounced now because uh, so many boys are socialized into it to where like you did you can bring them an idea and the first thought is well let me see what the family thinks or let me see what my wife thinks and and, and i say that on purpose because you're, you're socialized by your mother by your teachers and for the most part you're socialized to follow uh, most particularly your future wife and so what i've noticed is that you also have an intergenerational dynamic where mothers are almost handing off authority to wives over husbands. You know, Absolutely. Men that they raised to serve women. And so you have this very interesting, and this is why I call it a gynarchy or a gynocracy in the black community. <laughs> and I mean that very seriously. I do, because at the end of the day, uh, that, that status was put into place by the state. Whether you're talking about welfare, uh, support for the poor, or whether you're talking about college access for the, the, the working to middle, middle class, the frameworks put in place and buoyed by the state promoted women and provided them, uh, you know, the, the trappings of, or at least, you know, some of the trappings of middle class access. But men were not made the same offer. At the same time period, women were offered college, men were offered prison. Right. Yeah. And this is the dynamic. So so when you add that to the power dynamics in place, the gender power dynamics and, and a few other institutions we don't have time to go into right now, what you end up with is a black gynarchy or a black gynocracy where it is primarily women in positions of power in the black community. So the bait and switch or the gaslighting is to tell you that you're oppressive, but nobody can identify which institutions black men control. But somehow black men are oppressive. And what that does is it creates a savior narrative where women who are conceptualized as being inherently more pure, inherently better and more qualified must step in to save the black community from these sexist, oppressive um, patriarchs that don't exist. And that becomes the narrative. So by the time you get to a Black Lives Matter, um, that's kind of the framework in place already. 
that it's black Absolutely. women that must come save the day. Brother Sarah, comment on it. Tell tell me, you know, what you think. Well, come on with it, bro. <laughs> that's something we've been talking about for, for a long time. And, you know, that, that is the primary premise of the show, that there is a movement, the black feminism movement, based upon a false premise. Black women have never had a subservient role in the black community ever. Mm -hmm. Particularly in our experience here in the United States. Just as Brother Asar talked about the example that, that he saw with his family, I've talked about a number of times in conversations with, with both of you about friends of mine who I know who are married who cannot talk to me on the phone <laughs> in the presence yeah. of their woman. <laughs> they have to go and sit in the parking lot of the 7-Eleven to, to yeah. have a phone call. <laughs> you see that? You see that? That's sad. It's true. And it's, it's sad, but it it's true. So what, what, what oppression are, are black men imposing upon black women such that they need feminism? You know, what family do you know of that is not female dominated in the black community? Right. Right. Mine, mine so, was. So, you yeah, know, so, particularly so. on my mother's side. So where is this coming from? So that's you know, brings us back to the point that this obviously was something that was a strategy that was initiated by the enemy to undermine the community by creating a, a crisis that didn't exist mm. and a strategy to to address it which is, is really fake so the, 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 the purpose of it is is to undermine uh, the black man uh, to undermine his authority to undermine his, his image to undermine his strength and they use many different mediums in order to do that and the saddest part of it is that our women are being used as the principal pawns in our destruction hmm. Hmm. brother sorry you were going to add in go ahead so when you because the ultimate objective is the destruction of the black family hmm. okay. that objective was achieved during slavery okay? mm -hmm. and one of the things that came out of when you start talking about the emotional well-being of black people psychiatrists of the day during the height of slavery they deemed the term called drapedomania oh yeah they classified as if a if a slave runs from the plantation <coughs> he's considered mentally ill mm -hmm. so now that experience accompanied us into the 20th and 21st century Mm. So in psychiatry, there's something called a love map. So that map is defined by how you see your pa your parents, how they model love before you. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So that map becomes just like AAA when they give you a road map to get from point A to point B. That's the <laughs> map that you follow into adulthood to see what love is for you as it's been modeled for you in your childhood. Mm -hmm. So again, these psyops have been designed to disrupt that love map. Mm. Okay. Mm. So when you look at that 
because you can't have a community without the black family. So they destroy the black family, they destroy the black community. We have no voting block, we have no economic block, we have nothing to build on. And again, you would think by now, we would have learned this trick bag by now. Mm. But mm. again, they, they run it like clockwork. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and I have to be honest, I, I can come from my lived experiences, I can come from my science that I've been practicing, seems like forever, but I don't have the answers. So I write my teaching manuals, my syllabuses to, to try to give people insight. This is how you counter this. Mm. We have conversations with Brother Sarah. How many people do you still encounter other than our immediate circle? There were cochleites. Mm. Does anybody come to you and revisit those conversations? Does anybody say, well, how can how can we rebuild some of the things that that brother taught us? You know, we, he talked about having research organizations. Well, that's all we do is sit around and research. We we always call good white sources. That's right. How do how do we break down what they're doing to us so we can come up with a a viable formula to counter it? Well, I can say, you know, it, it, one of the groups that uh, I listen to on YouTube is called the Black Brain Trust. And it's a collective of brothers that basically exchange, exchange information and break down and analyze various occurrences, you know, various issues across the globe, really. Um, and one of the brothers that I've had here on my show, Black Gnostic Speaks, um, is very much tied into that. So you have you have these collectives, but you know, in many ways, it, it's 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 hard to always keep up and connect with what's going on where. So you're still you're absolutely right that it needs to happen, it needs to be more pronounced, and, and we keep falling for these psyops, but uh, the brothers like yourself that are doing this work, we gotta make sure that when we do find them, when we do hear from them, that we connect people with what they're doing. You know, so when we talk about, you know, your your work, uh, you know, counseling people, as well as developing these frameworks for people to understand, Brother Sarah's show and uh, Sarah's, uh, you know, uh, therapeutic, spiritual therapeutic kind of work uh, that's important that we share that because the networks are kind of there but we, we often don't uh, you know bring them in and, and let people know they're available so with, with, with three minutes left I want to get your final thoughts and I want both of you to share how people can reach you and tie into the work you're doing uh, let's start with Brother Asar okay to your listeners amongst my cultural family I'm known as Asar Adigumpomani. That's an also known as, that's an AKA. Um, professionally, I'm known as Antonio Martin. And if you just Google, ask me where it hurts, all my pages will come up, my blog site, my website, my Facebook page, my Twitter account. I'm not a hard brother to find. Mm. So if you just Google that, ask me where it hurts, that's my moniker, that's my brand. My email address is on there. And if I could be of any assistance, because again, this gift that I've been given, the universe has bestowed upon me, I am obligated to administer care to those in need. Hmm. So ask me what hurts, you Google that, you will find me. All right. Brother Sarah? Well, first, I want to say that as black people, we need to be mindful that we have a an enemy 
that's working to undermine us. And if we operate without that consciousness, then anything that we do is is going to be working under a uh, it's going to be working under un, under a bad foundation because if you already you know as brother Steve told us you know we have to understand you know the enemy we have to know what the obstacles are in order to be able to chart our course and so it's imperative that we be able to evaluate and understand what is working against us so we can we can chart chart the appropriate course and create counter strategies to deal with it. Okay, now for me, you can reach me and I'm a, I'm a spiritual teacher and what I believe spirituality is about is not about escaping life. It's about using spiritual principles in order to be able to navigate the journey of life effectively. And that's what I teach. And I help people to deal, do that on their individual journeys, uh, both uh, personally and with respect to relationships. So I have a program called Journey into Self, which is to help people to develop themselves spiritually in order to be able to deal with all situations. I have a Journey into Relationships program as well that, that helps people to, to see how relationships uh, help to advance you when you're on your personal quest for, for spiritual ascension. I can be reached at uh, sa-ra.org. I'm Sara, sa-ra.org. You can also reach out to me on Facebook. I'm Sara on Facebook. I'm Sara on YouTube. I'm, okay. I'm Sara. And, and also reach out for my, for, or look out for my book on Amazon. I have two books, uh, Luminous Wisdom, uh, yeah, the Book of Light, Luminous Wisdom, and then just the Book of Light. All right. And, you know, here you can catch the Onyx Report with Dr. T. Hassan Johnson every uh, first and third Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on Inner Light Radio and um, most other Wednesdays at 5 p.m., roughly speaking, on YouTube. You can catch my channel, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. You can catch up on archived past shows uh, where in that medium we work uh, in video. Uh, but y'all know how I like to close out. I'm here to tell brothers that we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellspring, success <laughs> objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery. I am here to tell you brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.